0: Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, and as our summer hiatus continues, uh, we'd like to take you back to episode 72. That was my interview with Burl Fallbaum. Mr. Fallbaum is the co-author of an incredible book. It's called Justice Failed, How Legal Ethics Kept Me in Prison for 26 Years. Uh, He wrote this book with Alton Logan, and Mr. Logan is the person at the center of the story. He was imprisoned in Illinois for 26 years despite the fact that people knew he was not guilty. Lawyers knew he was not guilty and yet he remained in there for 26 years. How could this happen? It's a story of morality, of legal ethics, and so much more. So here is our Episode 72 interview with Burl Fallbaum. I sure hope you like it. An important rule of legal ethics is the obligation to keep client information confidential. But what happens when following that rule keeps an innocent person in prison? How Ethics Rules Concealed Justice for a Quarter Century on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is produced in partnership with 90.5 WESA, Pittsburgh's NPR news station. Streaming and podcasting at WESA.FM. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer of our messy criminal justice system. Still glad to have that day job, too, as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Over the last 25 years, we've heard more and more stories about people who've gone to prison, convicted for serious crimes, things like murder, rape, who are freed years later when the truth comes out. Sometimes this happens because of evidence withheld by police or prosecutors. But more often, it seems, DNA or other new evidence exposes sloppy police work, failed forensic techniques, or even false confessions. The former prisoner finally walks free, into the waiting arms of the family that never doubted his innocence. Here's some examples. Here's some audio from ABC News, WDIV in Detroit, and Sky News. Take a listen. Year-old Sean Thomas was all smiles as he celebrated with his fiancee Stefania Long and his lawyers from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. How does he feel? I feel wonderful. A free man. I, I, I can't feel no better. Hey man, this guy believe in God and had a right legal team and keep fighting. Marco Contreras has waited 20 years for this moment, a judge confirming what he knew all along. If he is ordered released forthwith. He may leave from this courtroom. I just want to thank everybody for everything
1: that you've done, for all the support, for all the work you've done. I want to thank you. I appreciate you. I love you. I don't know how I'm ever going to repay
0: you. The case we'll discuss on this episode differs from these and many others in one stark respect. In this case, two lawyers knew the truth the whole time, but the rules of client confidentiality required them to stay silent. This is the case of Alton Logan. You may have heard about it before. Logan rightfully got a lot of attention when he was finally released back in 2008. Let's talk about what got him there. In 1982, a security guard at a Chicago-area McDonald's was shot and killed. Alton Logan was charged with that murder, even though he had three alibi witnesses saying he was at home at the time of the crime. A second man named Edgar Hope was charged, too. Meanwhile, a different case, something completely unrelated, arose elsewhere in Chicago. A man named Andrew Wilson faced murder charges for killing two Chicago police officers. Wilson was represented by two public defenders, Dale Coventry and John Kunz. As Hope's lawyer prepared his case, Hope told him something important— Alton Logan wasn't involved in the McDonald's shooting. The real killer in the McDonald's shooting case was Andrew Wilson, the man already accused of killing those two police officers. Hope asked his lawyer to get the word out to Logan's defense team and anyone else involved. The lawyer went to Logan's people as well as Wilson's. Wilson's lawyers asked him, Did you do it? And right off, he admitted to the crime. Yes, he'd killed the McDonald's security guard. But for Coventry and Coons, the admission raised a terrible conundrum. They now knew that Alton Logan would be going on trial for a murder he definitely didn't commit. But they only knew this because Wilson, their client, told them so. And his statements were subject to attorney-client confidentiality. Coventry and Coons checked and double-checked the law. They talked to experts and everyone told them the same thing. You're bound by your oath as lawyers to keep quiet. And, of course, if they had broken the privilege, it would have put the rope around their client's neck for a third murder. The innocent man, Alton Logan, was eventually convicted of the crime with what looked like a life sentence. In the meantime, Coventry and Kunz came up with an idea. They wrote an affidavit saying what they learned, signed it, and they locked it away. That way, if the opportunity ever arose for them to reveal what they knew, no one could say later that they were just making it up. And they also got their client's permission to disclose the secret after he died. And that was where things stood until their old client, Andrew Wilson, died in 2008. The lawyers came forward, and later that year, Alton Logan was released. Now, the damage to Alton Logan and his life from 26 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, is beyond comprehension. But pretty quickly, public discussion turned to the two lawyers who knew the truth but never revealed it. Had they done the right thing? Could it really be true that legal ethics barred them from speaking the truth to get an innocent man out of jail? Was there no way around this? That is the subject of a new book, and that's what we'll discuss on this episode with one of the book's authors. Burl Fallbaum is a veteran journalist and the author of eight books. His career includes 10 years as a political reporter for the Detroit News and also four years in state politics as the administrative aide to Michigan's lieutenant governor. He also worked in corporate public relations. His newest book, written with Alton Logan, is called Justice Failed, How Legal Ethics Kept Me in Prison for 26 Years, published by CounterPoint. We'll have a link to it up on our website for you. Burl Fallbaum, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
1: Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for inviting me to your program. It's very kind of you.
0: Sure. Now, you've heard uh, the description I just gave of the outline of Alton Logan's story. He's convicted for a crime he doesn't commit, a murder, uh, three lawyers, two for the actual killer, and one from another man involved in the crime. They actually knew Logan wasn't involved. And those two lawyers for the other guy, uh, Mr. Coventry and Mr. Coons, they represent the real killer, and when they get wind from that third lawyer, Mr. Miller, If their guy did the crime, they go to see him. Tell us about that.
1: Well, you summarize it very well. That's exactly how it happened. Uh, They recognized a conundrum, as you called it. They went to see Wilson. Wilson admitted it. And they uh, felt very strongly about it, that they could not come forward. When I interviewed them, I told them I disagreed totally with them but I try to be balanced and fair about evaluating their action, but I think it was totally unconscionable. My bottom line was, when I heard this story, was that a just society cannot knowingly, and that's the key word, permit an innocent man to stay in prison.
0: And and, and, and that that's, that's just your bottom line. You cannot leave an innocent man in prison. Uh, tell us, do you think that that when uh, Wilson told uh, his two lawyers that, do you think, uh, did they think that he was telling the truth?
1: Oh, absolutely. There was no reason for him to lie. He was in prison facing charges for the killing of two additional police officers. So there was no reason for him to lie to say this. I did this. Sometimes we hear about false confession, but there was no reason for him to lie. Incidentally, and uh, we get into this later, uh, Wilson ultimately did confess in a sworn statement in uh, 207 before he passed away. So there was no reason for Wilson. All Wilson had to do was say, no, I didn't do this, and it would have been the end of the case. No, they believed him because, again, at the risk of repetition, there was no reason for him to confess to that crime.
0: And uh, did they ask him at the time? Uh, whether he would allow them, give them permission to disclose this information in order to save Alton Logan from either the death penalty or for going to prison I, for something I he didn't asked
1: do? Coventry, I asked Co- Mr. Coons has passed away. I asked Mr. Coventry that question, whether why didn't you just ask him that you could speak out, and his answer was he didn't want to hear the confession because that would uh, give a third charge of murder against him. So it wasn't totally the ethics issue. There was a fear of having him charged with a third crime. So you're absolutely right in asking that question, but he didn't either. He said I didn't even want to ask him because if he said yes, then I'm obligated to make that public, and he would be facing a third charge.
0: But isn't the decision ultimately um, the person's to make, not the lawyer?
1: It is, but he also said, "I know." He he said that Wilson doesn't know the law as well as I do. He may not even know what he's doing by giving him permission. And I'm his lawyer. My job is to defend him, i.e. I would not ask him to release me of that obligation until after he died. So you're covering a very sensitive point and very good point, but uh, Coventry didn't want him to permit him to speak out.
0: Doesn't that go beyond the simple rule of legal ethics that's at stake here?
1: I say this in the book, that it's also about protecting uh, and defending uh, Wilson against the third charge. So it wasn't totally... All ethics. It was also the concern that he would face the third murder charge. They were trying to avoid the death penalty for Wilson on the killing of the two police officers, and they certainly didn't want to have to go into court and defend him on the third charge. Absolutely. So that little tidbit goes beyond the ethics issue. Absolutely.
0: All right. Let's focus in like a laser beam on the rule itself. All right. Uh, Mm -hmm. We pulled up the the Illinois Rule of Ethics that prohibited uh, Coventry and Coons from disclosing. That's Rule 1.6 entitled Confidentiality of Information, and I'll just read a little sliver of it here. A lawyer shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent. The disclosure is impliedly authorized in order to carry out the representation or the disclosure is permitted – by paragraph B or required by paragraph C. Now, uh, we can get into those B and C exceptions in a little while if you want, but, but the, the bottom line here seems to be you can't disclose unless the client gives informed consent. Talk a little bit about what that means.
1: Well, the fear, of course, is that if they broke that code, you possibly face disbarment as a lawyer. That's the risk they take. My position was, and I'm not a lawyer, and it's probably easy for me to say, that I could not live with myself knowing that an innocent man was there. If I were to be disbarred, so be it. I would work to get another job or whatever. And I interviewed a lot of lawyers and discussed this case with many friends and so forth. And one lawyer said to me, he's a good friend of mine, under those circumstances, I don't want to be a lawyer. So he was prepared to also talk and, and speak out and break their silence. Again, to me, to use the word again, is unconscionable to let them. So I think, by the way, if we get into it, there are mechanisms, which we discussed in the last chapter, of making changes in the law which would protect the client while permitting to free an innocent man.
0: Let's tail back to those in just a minute because I want to okay. focus in about on what was happening at the time. Uh, is it true that Coventry and Coons they they did the research, they went to the experts, they 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 looked very hard to see if there was any way around this.
1: They did. They used to told me that they talked to judges and friends and lawyers about the possibility. Coventry was a lot more secretive than Coons. Coons was very emotional and regrettably passed away. And My sympathies to the families, I sent them. And uh, they talked to judges under a, making a hypothetical situation. If I know this, can I speak out? And most, if not all of them, told them, you could not. Uh, and so they, they agonized. Uh, both of them agonized. And by the way, I didn't get a chance to talk to Mark Miller. And there was a fourth lawyer involved, Andre Lyon. Who's now dean of the Valparaiso Law School, and I talked with her, and she, by the way, is the one who recommended the affidavit. And she also, they, all three of them, agonized tremendously over the situation, but nevertheless, remained maintained their silence. I don't know how you raise families and go on vacations daily, <laughs> with not this not being on your mind, that this poor man is sitting in a five by seven cell and three and a half years in solitary confinement, and not speak out. But they did. The answers question directly. They did talk to a lot of
0: people. They talked to a lot of people. They got the same answer. And let's see if we can we can view it from their point of view. I mean, they are protecting something that it has a high value in the legal system, this idea of right. client confidentiality. Right. And right. in point of fact, they'd probably tell you uh, that this was key to them finding out about this at all. So what did you learn about client confidentiality and its place in the legal system?
1: Well, I certainly respect that code. Uh, I understand why it's in place. I'm not a lawyer, but I certainly understand why it's there. There has to be some way to get an innocent man out, and I think it can be done.
0: What I'm curious about is uh, I, I understand your position, but right. is it not true that the client confidentiality actually serves very valuable interests? If a client well, doesn't know that right. what they have to say will be kept secret um right they will not be forthcoming. And that will mean that their defense will not maybe be as strong or as effective as it could be. The lawyer is effectively working with with his or her hands tied behind the back. So we have client confidentiality so the lawyer can know everything there is to know about the case. And that's the interest that they were sworn to serve. So it's not for nothing, is it?
1: No, no, no. I'm not even suggesting that. What I'm suggesting, though, is there are ways that perhaps we can – protect the client as well as get the innocent man out. Uh, two states already have done that incidency, Massachusetts and Alaska, so it works. Uh, they have in the 1.6 model code, that is the recognized code through, I think, all the states in the union, they've added a clause that lawyers can speak out, may, may, may speak out, not they don't require them, if it leads to the exoneration of an innocent person. So, so two states already have recognized that it can be done.
0: Okay, and checked with and and how often has that been done in those two states? Well,
1: that's my point. It's so rare. I don't think, as far as I could tell from my you know interviews with both uh, state bar associations in both states, nobody can remember it ever happening before. This is such a rare occasion for all these dynamics to come into place that we're arguing of how many you know angels can sit on the head of a pin. As far as I could tell, I only found this case, which by the way I didn't find. It was on sixty minutes, which led me to the book. And a case in North Carolina where the the opposite result ended up, and we can talk how that happened, and the poor man already who was innocent has spent 30 years in prison, and will probably, I talked to his lawyer, he will probably die in prison. His health is not well, and there are no hearings scheduled at the time I published. Yes. So my point is, I recognize and I respect and I understand fully the reason for the confidentiality provision in the Code of Ethics, but... that's the big bud that we're discussing. Yes. This cannot be permitted to happen to any human being. Right. It can't.
0: And in fact, uh, you did find signs, strong ones, that both Coventry and Coons were very concerned about this, though they felt bound by the rules. Coventry, didn't he even go to the death sentencing proceedings for Alton Logan in his trial? He attended.
1: He, He didn't attend the trials. He did go, as you indicate, he did go to the day the jury would come out and advised the court of whether they were voted for the death penalty. We said, I wanted to see whether he would be sentenced to death. And the vote, as you indicated, was 10 to 2, and two votes spared Alton Logan for going on death row. So I asked both Coventry and Coons and Andre Lyon, what would you have done if the jury had been unanimous and sentenced Alton Logan to death?
0: What did they tell you?
1: Basically, they said, and in summary, that if that had happened, they would have gone to the governor of the state at the time, who happened to be a, a Governor Thompson, a Republican, and asked him to commute that sentence. I said, fine. What if Thompson had said no?
0: The right. What would they have spread? done then?
1: Then he said, we haven't discussed it that far. Well, I said, you know, you're taking a big risk because what if the governor says no and you don't have another plan B? Alton Logan will sit on death row, and you know may even be executed if his uh, appeals run out. And so he never they're, did they're, answer the question. Ultimately, what they would have done if indeed Alton Logan, with all his appeals exhausted, had been sentenced to death, he probably would have been executed.
0: Right, and and, and we can take it a step further too. I mean, one of the, the things that's so powerful in the book is Alton Logan's statement that you know, in a certain respect, there isn't much difference between getting a death sentence and staying in prison for the rest of your life? Uh, one he of them, that
1: point.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of them, you know, you are executed. The other, you simply uh, exist in a living hell forever, and you never have any hope. I mean, how did the lawyers distinguish between uh, the execution of an innocent man and the execution of everything about the innocent man except for his life?
1: Yeah, well, that's it's easy for the three lawyers to say that we, we, did, we believe there was a you know, distinction. All, Logan didn't believe that. He said, All you do is you die slower. He said, Ultimately, you die in prison. They have no idea what prison is like, and all you do is. He said, People asked me that I'd count the days and the weeks, and I responded, I counted the years. So it's easy, you know, both Coons and Andrea Lyon said, We saw a distinction between the death penalty and life imprisonment. Logan told them they couldn't be more wrong.
0: Yeah. So eventually they settle on uh, some kind of accommodation. They decide that they will put together this affidavit, the two of them, Coventry and Coons, and it was Andrea Lyon's idea. And it's a sworn statement uh, under oath by the two lawyers that they have come into possession of information – it indicates that Alton Logan is innocent, doesn't disclose the source, doesn't say what it right, is. Right, right. Um, and the idea of that was simply to freeze that information at the time, to know that in the future nobody could say, hey, you're just – you know, you just come up with this at the last minute to save this guy.
1: That was the strategy at the time. They said we need something that somewhere along the line, if this comes public where we can discuss things – we won't be told that we made it up that we have a signed sealed and authorized statement by the way the statement as i say in a book is 45 words and 45 words cost this man his life so that's why they drafted it they didn't know how this case would be unfold. you know would unfold years later but just in case and by the way Coventry stored that strong box you described under his bed so every day when he went to bed he had this a statement underneath his bed that would have freed this man.
0: Yes. Now, um, one other thing that happened that made things come out the way it did is Coventry eventually went to Wilson and he said, can I disclose this after you die? Now, that's a very unusual request. What What made him do it? When did he make that request?
1: Well, he saw him first with Coons and at which time he got the confession, and at a later meeting with Wilson... He asked him if he could reveal the information when he died. The principal reason he did that is the Supreme Court has ruled that confidentiality survives death. The court had ruled that. so if he hadn't asked him and got permission, uh, if it ever came out, the court would rule, the court has ruled, the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, confidentiality survives death, i.e., no case. So he got—that's why he asked him, so now he has—it was oral— there was no written record of Wilson saying yes, but that's to answer your question, that's why he asked him.
0: Okay, so we've got the affidavit. It's locked in the strong box underneath Dale Coventry's bed, and 26 years go by. Let's take right. a quick break at this point. You're listening to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris. Our guest is Burl Fallbaum. He's one of the co-authors of a new book on the Alton Logan case. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Friday, a panel of journalists delves into the top news stories of the week, how they unfolded, the impact on the Pittsburgh region, and what might come next. From politics to government operations, from energy and the environment to education, to challenges and opportunities in our communities. I'm Kevin Gavin. Listen to the Confluence, where the news comes together. Fridays at noon on 90.5 WESA. Hi, it's Criminal Injustice. David Harris here with you, and our guest is Burl Fallbaum. He is one of the co-authors of a new book, Justice Failed, How Legal Ethics Kept Me in Prison for 26 Years. He wrote that with Alton Logan, the man who spent the time in prison. Uh, Let's resume uh, by talking about uh, the fact that Wilson, the man who actually did the killing – Um, he is ultimately spared from the death penalty in his own cases for killing the two police officers. So he's not going to be executed. Uh, He was, in fact, a victim of the notorious uh, Chicago police torture scandal led by Lieutenant John Burge. So his life is spared. At this point uh, or at any other, does Coventry ever go back to him and say, would you consider – allowing me to get Alton Logan out of prison?
1: No. Again, the reason he didn't, he did not want his client to be charged with a third crime, and he was protecting him against that, which, as we discussed, makes the issue a little beyond just ethics. He was protecting his client. He said Wilson might have said, yes, you can speak out, not recognizing as a layperson the risks he was taking, and he said to me, I'm his lawyer, I need to protect him. So, no, he never asked him again. He never asked that question. He didn't want to ask that question.
0: So he never ends up asking him that, and then eventually... No, he, and he never,
1: excuse me, he yes. never even asked him to sign that affidavit in which they say he didn't. I said, did you ask him to sign the affidavit? He said, no, no, I didn't want his name on anything that implicates him in the murder.
0: Okay. So he's taking care of Mr. Wilson, though he doesn't represent Wilson in any case, there's no case against him for the killing of the security guard. He is simply looking out for his interest, which I think you accurately say goes a little beyond any particular confidentiality duty uh, he may have. But I know lawyers differ on this. They feel that they represent the, the whole client that, you know, it, it, at every point and they're not going to do anything to increase any jeopardy of well, the client. And certainly a new case would well, increase his legal jeopardy.
1: Right. Well, he represented him in the killing of the two police officers, but then when that was settled, if he had asked Wilson, can he speak out now, and he did, he would have to represent him in the third case, and he didn't want to do that.
0: Well, somebody would represent him. It wouldn't necessarily be...
1: be It would most likely be Coventry. He was his attorney. There's no reason to switch attorneys.
0: Well, I disagree with that because Coventry would then end up as a witness, perhaps, but that's water under the bridge at this point.
1: Well, you're probably right because I'm not that... Versed in the law as you were just suggesting, but I know he didn't want to, he was protecting his client, whether it was he would be the attorney or somebody else, he did not want to risk him facing a third charge.
0: Right. So eventually Wilson dies. The lawyers uh, disclosed the affidavit, though they don't want to do it, just bring it to court. They ask the judge to order it to be brought to court. And Mr. Miller, the lawyer for Hope, he comes in. He's retired by then, but he comes in and he testifies about what Hope told him. And all this testimony comes out and fairly soon after that, Alton Logan walks free. And many people, I think, kind of applauded Coventry and Coons. Maybe that's too strong a word, but they thought that they did something really good with that affidavit They did the most that could be done or imagined so that sometime in the future, if it came to pass, that they could disclose it would be there and it would be in its most powerful form, that evidence of somebody else having done it. And so they were, you know, they were kind of applauded by many people that this had been a brilliant move. And I take it you disagree. I
1: disagree totally. You know, the interesting there was a a strict divide lawyers and people in the legal community generally and i say generally there were exceptions, applauded them as the usual word yes they praised them and told them there was they showed good foresight lay people condemned them without exception so we have this divide and again i understand the legal community i understand it but so you're right basically they were supported by the legal community in what they did And lay people, as a matter of fact, I'm still getting emails underneath articles that appear by lay people who condemn the two for doing that. So we have that divide.
0: Right. So the opinion remains divided on this. And uh, so let's talk about what other things might be done. You've already talked about the Massachusetts and Alaska exceptions built into the legal ethics codes. And I find myself kind of feeling like if it were me – of course, I haven't been there, so it's all it's all easy to speculate. But Absolutely. I would have done something very much like what you described before. I would have said, "Look, in my career, my law license is just not worth it. I can't live with this. I have to disclose, even if it comes out very bad for my own client. At least, well, he did it. He did it right, and and, and the innocent man won't stay in prison." I give up my law license. I get disbarred. I can handle that because I want to live with myself. And the thing that really hit me when I was reading your book was that you tell the story of a lawyer in North Carolina who did almost exactly that. Tell us that little story and what happened in that case.
1: Well, as I was researching, I discovered a case involving Lee Wayne Hunt, who was convicted some 30 years ago with a partner of a murder he didn't commit. His partner died. He's the one who committed the crime. The lawyer for both of them went to court and said, "I can now want to speak out. There's no point in remaining silent. The real killer is dead, and I want to testify that the man in prison is innocent." The judge involved warned him not to do so, saying he was violating his ethical, the ethical principle under the code, you know, recognizing the Supreme Court decision, and warned him not to testify. The lawyer was not dissuaded. He testified. Very briefly, the judge held him in contempt, reported him to the state bar. Reported
0: him to the it. state bar. I want to make yeah. sure everybody understands that.
1: Yeah, reported him for violation of the ethics code. I called the state bar to see what action they ever took because it's privileged information. They wouldn't tell me. But in my research, I saw news reports that they had dismissed the charges. I think the New York Times followed up and were able to con- confirm that. So he was not disbarred, but he retired and had some very moving quotes. And the man is still in prison. It's 30 years. I checked with his new attorneys to see where the case was. And basically, he said, we're still looking for some hearings, but his health is bad. And he's been there for 30 years.
0: And so the lawyer coming out and saying, this guy's innocent. Um, you can do whatever you want to me. Uh, maybe he didn't get disbarred, but it actually did not help the person he was trying to help.
1: No, it did not. Nothing. Nothing happened. No, the judge wouldn't accept the testimony. He, he wouldn't. He wouldn't accept it under the law. And he said, "I'm going to report you to the bar," and he did. And nothing happened to help uh, the man who's, like, as I indicated, is still in prison, Lee Wayne Hunt. And uh, that talk about a tragedy. You know, I mean, all, Logan's was a tragedy, but at least he got out after 26. And this man is still sitting there
0: innocent. You know, it brings me back to something that Coventry, one of the lawyers for Wilson, said in your book. He said that even if he had decided to break his silence, break his oath and come out, he did not believe that the system would accept it. He believed the system to be corrupt in the sense Uh, that it was going to do everything it could to keep Alton Logan in. And there was no point in him breaking his oath. And this little story from North Carolina kind of seems to prove his point.
1: Well, I tend to agree with Coventry, not only in my research in this book, but general research that touched on that issue. Coventry told me that when it was assigned to the circuit judge, uh, James Schreier, it was the best thing that happened to Alton Logan because he described Judge Schreier as an honorable man who would not just rubber stamp everything else that happened. Other judges might have said, look, the man had two trials, had a lot of appeals, he was so found guilty you know, end of the case, Schreier listened to the evidence and described it as one of the most unusual cases that he's ever heard. And I read the transcript, and he listened. So Coventry was right that the system probably, except for the fact that Judge Schreier heard it, to rubber stamp all the previous decisions over 25, 26
0: years. So as for alternatives, we've got the Massachusetts-Alaska possibility, which hasn't been used. We've got the attorney coming out and saying, look, I'm giving up my law license if if that's what it takes, and the judge rejecting that. Uh, There was another alternative in your book, this one put forth by Andrea Lyon, who was the person who came up with the idea for the affidavit and who actually notarized it. She's got a third idea, at least. Uh, Talk about that a little bit.
1: Her idea I like very much. She said, what if we had the attorneys involved, Coventry and Coons, establish an in-camera meeting in chambers to either one judge or a panel of judges and go into the Room and say, look, here's the evidence that Alton Logan is innocent, the judges rule, free Alton Logan, but, and here's the key, that information is never made public, so it doesn't hurt the client. That information behind closed doors will never be made public, but the judges rule and, and the innocent man is free. That makes sense to me. We do that to some extent in grand jury testimony. We do that right now. We we know, we hear a case, but that's all private. It's never made public. And that makes sense to me, and she recommended that, and all the other attorneys, uh, well, not all, Coen still objected, but Coventry seemed to agree with that. And there's one other possibility, which is the fall bomb. My, my,
0: the my fall bomb. bomb method. Let's hear it.
1: The fall bomb method, which I mentioned, is just give them guilty party immunity. Let them walk free. We have always maintained or 250 years of criminal law, that it's better to let a guilty man go free, or a woman, than have, you know, have 10, 15, or 100 in a, uh, guilty people go free and have one person go to prison. Under that principle, which I endorse, give them immunity, let them walk free, and let El- Logan and Lee Wayne Hunt get out of prison.
0: Yeah, I, I, I see the appeal of both of those. Uh, you would get pushback, I think, on the on Andrea Lyon's idea because right. it would all be kind of private and settled behind closed doors. And the judicial system is usually supposed to be open.
1: I understand, but we have grand juries, which do the same thing, and people don't like immunity. those. Uh, well, we have it, and we have uh, we give people who are guilty immunity for testimony against others. Yes, we so do. We do it. And we do this all the time. And so, why not do it when we know? Again, the key word is knowingly. We make enough mistakes by the way, to send innocent people to prison. The best estimates that I could get there are between ten and thirty innocent people in prison as we speak. Some of that, but most of that happens for political reasons, for mistakes. But to knowingly let an innocent—that's all a different issue. Yes. So I think the in-camera situation makes sense to me. The immunity thing makes sense to me, and there's a third one. What if the man, like Andrew Wilson, already faces the death penalty? Too, he wouldn't have been harmed by that. He's already going to spend the rest of his life in prison. It didn't matter. He was not getting out for killing two police officers.
0: Well, if so they put him, if they gave him the death penalty for this new case, though, that would be additional harm, would it not?
1: Sure, but you so you make so you bargain uh, with prosecutors, saying, "Look, let's." Put, take the death penalty off. There's so many. I mean, we have the ingenuity. Right. And the, by the way, mm-hmm. I share your original view. I'm going to get pushback. Of course, I'm going to get pushback because I am presently trying to get organizations. My objective is to see if I can get somebody in the system to take up this cause to change the ethics codes on this. I'm calling legal, and I'm getting back and I understand changing the culture of historic institution isn't going to be easy.
0: Right, always tough, always tough.
1: Yeah, you know, everybody's calling me Don Quixote, but so be it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. So there are ways of doing it. We have, like, again, we have the ingenuity. We certainly have the brain power, you know, with people in the Supreme Court to sit down with bar associations and work out a mechanism by which client interests can be protected. And at not, but not at the expense of the innocent. That can't be done. There's no there is no legitimate argument to protect the guilty at the expense of the innocent.
0: One final question here. Where is Alton Logan now? How is he doing? Al- what, is his, is, what is his take on this?
1: Uh, Alton Logan is out. I'm going to see him in two weeks. I'm going to, we're going to speak to his church on the book. He's 50, 64 years old. He, he got into prison at 28. He got out at 55. He uh, he doesn't have a job because when he got out, nobody believed the story. Despite the fact that he attached news stories and legal papers, nobody would hire him. And I'm going to see him. Uh, I'm in, outside Detroit. He's in Chicago. I'm going to see him in two weeks, and we're going to have dinner and do a couple speeches in Chicago. And he's healthy, thank God. He he got married after he left, got out of prison. Obviously, he's not having any children at 64 now, but he's healthy. He's married to a wonderful woman that I've met. And God willing, he'll live out his uh, life healthy and happy.
0: And what's his final take on Dale Coventry and uh, Jamie Coates? Well, that's
1: the most amazing part of the story. He was not angry with them, which I didn't understand. I assumed he'd be angry and bitter. He was not because here's what he said. He also suffered from police abuse and prosecutor's abuse. And he said to me, I disagreed with their decision, but I give them credit to the only ones in the system who followed the rules. And I was just stunned by his uh, statement. He appeared with Coventry and Coons at public uh, seminars to discuss the case, shook their hand, and was not bitter against them. I, I, to this day, I don't understand that. I would not be that magnanimous. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think it would take an extraordinary human being.
1: Oh, it would be, and he is. Yes, he is.
0: Burl Fallbaum, he is the co-author of Justice Failed. How Legal Ethics Kept Me in Prison for 26 Years, a book he wrote with Alton Logan. Thanks very much for being with us on Criminal Injustice.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And now let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, which comes to us courtesy of phillymag.com's news and Opinion section, it concerns lawyer Patrick Bradley of Collegeville, Pennsylvania. Lawyer Bradley first came to the attention of bar authorities in Pennsylvania in 2015 over his management of trusts set up for the benefit of people... With special needs, people with loved ones who have special needs sometimes set up trust accounts so that they know that their family members with special needs will have what is necessary for their care and maintenance. Well, lawyer Bradley served as the attorney overseeing some of these trusts and, according to the Pennsylvania Bar, he began stealing from them. Yes, this lawyer began taking money, something like $146,000, set aside for the care of those with special needs, using it for his own expenses. What kind of expenses? Well, you know, just the expenses of everyday life. $537 at Ikea, $31 at Wawa. That's like a 7-Eleven in the eastern United States for those of you who live elsewhere. $240 to his dentist, $309 on the cable bill, and $228 to the IRS. You know, life is expensive. His law license was suspended in 2015 over this, but... Lawyer Bradley, being the kind of guy that he is, he just kept practicing law anyway. And so he ended up disbarred in 2016. In April of 2017, Bradley was indicted on 59 criminal counts, including felony theft and deceitful business practices. The district attorney's statement said it best. He said Bradley's conduct was, quote, not only illegal, but it's disturbing on a basic human level. Yeah. What kind of human being put in a position of trust over the funds intended to help and protect some of our most vulnerable citizens steals to pay his cable bill? Suspend, disbar, jail. I'd also go for exile. That is lawyers behaving badly. And that is it. For us on this episode of Criminal Injustice, find us, like us and review us, especially on iTunes and also on all your podcast apps. It really does help people find us. Share Criminal Injustice and use our website criminalinjusticepodcast.com to give us suggestions for guests and topics for future episodes and point us to stories of lawyers behaving badly. We have used your suggestions and thank you for them. I'm David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and recorded at the studios of 90.5 WESA, Pittsburgh's NPR news station. Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson produced the show with help from Katie Blackley. Find us online at CriminalInjusticePodcast.com for videos and articles mentioned in the podcast, more about our guests, and to tell us who and what you think we should cover next.